From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Can stronger restrictions on firearms help reduce the number of gun deaths? We'll explore this subject today with a medical social scientist. With me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Christopher Morley. He's chair of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate and an associate professor in family medicine and psychiatry and behavioral sciences. Welcome, Dr. Morley. So before we talk about your work on the association between firearm-related deaths and restrictions in New York State, I want to ask you about some other work you did recently on red line segregation. Tell us what, what that is. Sure. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss the, this work. The, uh, the history of redlining uh, actually spans a number of cities across the U.S. In the Great Depression, uh, the Homeowners Lending Corporation was an organization created by New Deal legislation in response to uh, catastrophic economic consequences of the Great Depression. And what, the, what Hulk, or the, uh, the, the acronym spells out, was doing was grading neighborhoods within cities for their creditworthiness. And if people lived within uh, an area that had a low credit rating, uh, for the whole area, they weren't able to access things like like business loans or refinance. And it had a dramatic effect on cities for their long-term viability because uh, neighborhoods where you can't get credit or can't start a business fall into disrepair and, and become even more segregated. Um, the, the grading of neighborhoods went from an A listing, which was a top-notch credit-worthy neighborhood to uh, B, down through C, and D. Uh, the areas that were listed as D and, and sometimes C often had literal red lines around them on a map. And if a client came into a bank, the bank would pull out the, 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 the map. And if you lived within a red line district, uh, you probably weren't getting any financing from that bank, regardless of whatever else you came from. And those those districts were often decided not just on uh, the cost of houses or, or, or things like that, but they actually, if you look at the forms, included things like the ethnic composition, the number of, of immigrants in the neighborhood, the number of African Americans in the neighborhood, and so forth. So do these neighborhoods persist today? Is it set up like that? So in some cities, they th- those areas have been gentrified. However, in Syracuse, one of the things that came out of the symposium on uh, health and society from a couple of years ago was that all of the talks were talking about Syracuse and things going on in Syracuse and in central New York. And our guest speaker did some background research and put up the red line maps just as a, a separate talk. And if you had attended the whole session, the whole series of sessions, you recognize that every area we were talking about is suffering from various um, uh, terrible health outcomes, was also overlapping with these areas that had been historically redlined. So what we were looking at is these these um, historical policies from nearly a century ago were um, apparently still playing out. They were still associated with health effects today. So what we did now was take a look at some 20th century data that we had lying around on a few different health effects, uh, health outcomes for the neighborhood, uh, neighborhoods in Syracuse, and did a did a study internally looking at the, the associations between those living in those neighborhoods and what the outcomes were for those neighborhoods today. And we looked at 
uh, low birth weight. We happen to have a data set from 24 through 20, 2000, 2004 to th- 2007. And it turns out that um, low birth weight was 1.5 times more likely to occur uh, in area in people who lived uh, in these these areas that had either had a C or a D rating historically back in 1937. Additionally, people who had uh, elevated blood lead levels uh, were two and a, two a little bit more than two times as likely to live in an area that area that had been historically economically segregated in this fashion. And most pointedly, and the thing we see in the headlines today are, are, are almost daily shootings and stabbings and, and other, other sorts of violence. So we actually had a, uh, a, a database of, of incidents of, of firearm violence in the city. And neighborhood firearm violence, uh, the rates of fi- neighborhood firearm violence per square mile, incidents of, of, of firearm, neighborhood violent, firearm violence per square mile, uh, were about 140 uh, a little bit higher per square mile versus about 29, about 30, 29.996 uh, for people who did not live in these historically so segregated a huge, areas. huge, 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 huge difference. difference. Yeah, in all sorts of he- of of, of um, I, I suspect we could keep going if we if we had other variables to analyze. But yeah, the the neighborhood firearm violence is particularly acute if you look at these areas that had been historically redlined versus those that had not. So as a medical social scientist, does any of this surprise you? No, not at all. And when we look at these variables, we have to take into account that the historically redlined areas are going to uh, be associated as well with current socioeconomic disadvantages that also will be currently associated with with contemporary uh, poor health outcomes. This is seen across uh, public health and social science studies of, of, of health outcomes. So this isn't surprising. The What we think was, was sort of the interesting thing about this study, uh, it's not unique, other people have done it in other cities and found similar results, is that when you actually look at this historical policy, the implication isn't that socioeconomic or sociodemographic variables influence health outcomes, but that there's also a historical policy that may have uh, served as a precipitator for the, for the, um, the, the maintenance of, of socioeconomic disparity through uh, ongoing neighborhood segregation. The effects of redlining lasted for decades and, uh, as, a, as an acute policy, and I think we can see the downstream effects even today. So another research project you were involved in looks at the association between firearm-related deaths and then the restrictions on sale, use, possession, and ownership of firearms in New York State. What made you want to look at this issue? So when we look at um, geographic differences, another thing that's going to, and health outcomes, another thing that's going to affect um, things that are happen- things that happen at the state and county level Right. We looked within the city of Syracuse at areas that had been affected by this redistricting. But at the state and county level, um, one of the things that was becoming apparent is that you see an awful lot of uh, violent incidents if you either monitor our own trauma unit or ER stats or if you just read the newspaper. And one of the things that I think people have been noticing is that the upstate cities like Syracuse in New York State 
are getting particularly violent, especially when you compare historically high crime areas in New York City and, and places like that. People we associate as the population centers with crime, that seemed to be shifting. So we decided to take a look. And we used a database that's produced by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, uh, called Whiskers. And I won't go into the, the, uh, the, the lengthy acronym for that, but it's basically a data set for, for injuries and fatalities that, that count uh, injury, reported injuries and fatalities at the county level across the country. And we decided to look at New York State as a, a potential natural quasi-experiment because New York State has, um, has a state level of restriction, and, but then the counties are awfully free to uh, enact additional restrictions as opposed to being, uh, being held to the state standard and nothing else. So instead of saying counties shall issue a, a pistol permit, for example, the county officers who do the issuing sh may issue a per pistol permit and they have significant discretion. And places like New York City, which count encompass five counties, have um, even additional regulation on the on a statutory regulation on who can possess firearms, including long guns, and how they can be possessed and so carried. So it's stricter. It's much stricter. And then counties such as Long Island counties, Suffolk and Nassau, um, are often very restrictive in how they issue the state level permits. For example, a full carry is very typically only to and from the shooting range or or to a, a dedicated shooting activity. You can't just walk around with a concealed firearm or a visible one for that matter. You can have it in your home, you can carry it to and from a shooting range, but not many other places. Um, very few people get get full carry licenses. So whether it's by the, the discretion granted to the issuing agent or by local legislation, New York City often operates as, as, a, as its own entity in, in, in a lot of regards, um, these places are more restrictive. And they historically had higher crime. But what we looked at when we looked at our, our, um, our data that we, we acquired from a public source, we found that when we, we looked at um, general population firearm deaths, that means everybody who, 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 who died from a gunshot wound of any sort, whether it's homicide, accident, suicide, um, we had 62 counties that had data available in, in Whiskers. And for 14 of those counties, we had uh, incidents of black male deaths. And black males tend to be dying at a higher rate. So we wanted to look at them as a special category. Um, and what we found uh, is that there were data available from 2008 through 2014 in this Whiskers, CDC Whiskers database. And when we looked at just New York City counties, the five New York City counties versus any other county in New York State for which there were data, so um, New York City versus essentially the rest of the state, we found that New York City had a, uh, a death rate for 2008 through 2014 of about 11.64 uh, deaths per 100,000 people. The rest of the state was uh, had a death rate of about 13.76. Almost 14 people per 100,000 were dying from firearm-related uh, incidents. Um, and when we include Long Island with New York City, so we look at this sort of downstate restrictive area for firearms, 
Uh, New York City still is about a little bit more than 11 per 100,000 with LA, LI included. So LI looks a lot like New York City from, from, from firearm death rates. And the rest of the state is still about the same. So adding Long Island did almost nothing. You added these suburban counties that are just more restrictive in practice, if not by statute. And the, the effect was almost identical. So um, fewer deaths per 100,000. Uh, in, in New York more, City, in the, in the more, more restrictive. restrictive areas, yes. Uh, and those were uh, marginally significant effects. However, when we rates in the in the uh, in the in the general population um, didn't differentiate between upstate cities, we also looked at upstate cities and compared those other cities. Syracuse, Buffalo, and Rochester fell in that category with the counties they sit in as proxies. So Erie County, Monroe County, and Onondaga County. When we looked at those cities compared to the rest of the state, there was no significant difference for the for for the general population when we did the same kind of analysis. So New York City and Long Island are actually are, have, have better rates than the rest of the state. But these upstate urbanized counties, what we call them, the three other biggest cities, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, and the counties they sit within, um, are not different than the rest of the state. But when we looked at uh, with specifically at black males in the 14 counties for which we had data, and that includes Erie, Monroe, uh, Onondaga, the five New York City counties, Long Island. So, so the same counties we're measuring plus a smattering of other counties across the state. Black males had a markedly higher death rate uh, from firearms uh, in, than in, in the upstate New York City uh, the upstate uh, uh, cities um, than in the rest of states. So black males were dying at almost 41 uh, incidents per 100,000 people versus the rest of state, which was about 16.72. Uh, wow. not, not quite 17 per 100,000. So you got about 41 compared to 17 um, deaths per 100,000. And we looked individually at the counties. I didn't bring the data with me, but when we separated out the counties, Buffalo and, and, and Onondaga are, are pretty are, are two of the highest uh, count, counties in terms of black male death rates from firearms in the entire state. And, and when we did county by county comparisons, people can look up the data and we don't have time to go through county by county comparisons. But um, so, for example, if people who grew up in the 70s remember movies that portrayed the Bronx as, as something, some, this terribly violent place, well, Buffalo and, and, and Erie County and, and Onondaga County put the Bronx to shame. Um, in, if, we were, if, if, if we're getting medals for the highest black male gun death rates. So the thing about these upstate urbanized cities is that they tend to follow restrictions that are much more like the rest of the state. So if you have an urbanized area that has um, more generalized or less restrictive uh, policies toward firearms or are, you know, the, the, the boundary between any of these cities and what becomes rapidly suburbia and rural areas, if you don't like the gun policy that's enforced within <laughs> at, at the sheriff's office, go next door and you have easy access. Um, those tend to have higher firearm rates. Now, this is not a causative study, right? We looked at associations only. We can see, well, this happens here and then this effect happens here. It doesn't mean we can draw a straight line. However, it is suggestive that in places that have um, taken a serious stance on who owns and who carries and how you possess and how you use a firearm seems to have an effect specifically uh, and, and more acutely within 
um, subpopulations like black males, um, that that those counties uh, tend to have a, a mitigating effect on, on who dies from firearm deaths. The study that you did looking at New York State counties and comparing the ones with more restrictive uh, firearm sales and use, do you think you'd find the same thing if you looked nationally in other cities that are maybe more restrictive? I believe we, we would. Um, there was a study that was done in, uh, in another city that found very similar results. They controlled a little bit differently than we did in our preliminary studies and um, found that socioeconomic variables tended to, tended to mitigate some of these effects. So what you're really looking at are, are um, um, for, for, for the redlining, for example, on, uh, on that, that poverty impacts this stuff as much as anything. Um, so I, I think when you look at nationally at policies, is it simply gun restriction? I'm not sure that that's the whole story. If you, um, if you restrict guns, it certainly seems to, to help. But that's not the complete picture. If you have um, access to firearms but, but provide conditions in which it, it um, is less advantageous or less um, conducive to using those firearms to commit a crime... That's important as well. So, for example, we have other associated uh, spikes. If you look at Syracuse, where we did our study, for example, we're one of the poorest cities in the nation by many markers. Um, it doesn't feel that way if you're middle or upper class, but that there's a sharp population divide mm-hmm. in, in how, our, how our income and our wealth is distributed. And if you're on the poor side of that distribution, the... The, the opportunities you have available to you are, are sparse. And so as was revealed last spring in, uh, in, in the Syracuse uh, newspaper lo- locally, uh, there's been a, a, a lot of surveillance of gang activity here. And if you, for example, uh, don't have a lot of opportunity otherwise and you're, you're uh, one of your most viable paths forward is to become involved in gang violence or something like that. Um, and you also have access to firearms. That's a, that's a bad combination. Um, uh, conversely, if you look at rural areas, we have a, a national spike in, uh, in suicides among populations that typically um, were, were sort of flat. So uh, white males in, in entering middle age are committing suicide. And often that's happening in rural areas where, uh, in a similar way, there has been fewer opportunities uh, developing as, as our economy shifts towards an urbanized, service-oriented economy and a professional society. So when you combine these, these socioeconomic and sociodemographic shifts, and we're not doing anything about uh, poverty and opportunity, and combine them with easy access to firearms, whether it's, um, whether it's middle-aged white males in, in rural areas that have no opportunities, or urbanized uh, people who, who don't have urban opportunities but have access to, um, we'll, we'll say, non uh, non-normative pathways to 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 uh, acceptance and, and community, um, or whether you're talking about alienated youth and the rash of school violence. If if you combine uh, these demographic shifts with access to firearms, 
you see what you have on a national scale. You've had a guest from uh, from the Public Health and Preventive Medicine Department earlier in this series, Dr. Formica. She was participating in a statewide, a national coalition studying the problem, and uh, they have several uh, reviews available that did a, do a really good job of looking at, at the, the combination of restrictions and their effect on on uh, on violence. So I do think you see this in, in other studies and you see it replicated. You see it replicated on an international scale. Uh, countries that are more restrictive have fewer, um, fewer violent incidents related to firearms, fewer deaths related to firearms um, on a population rate. And people will debate that those are vastly different contexts. And uh, I don't disagree that comparing Australia with the United States might be a little weird because lots of things are different, for example. Right. However, what we did with the study we just we talked about earlier, um, where we looked within one state, and you can say the counties are vastly different, but it's still one state, right? right. Comparing Syracuse to the Bronx might, be, might sound very different if you live here, but it certainly isn't comparing um, the United States to Australia. We're, we live in the same state. We inhabit a place that's 400, you know, 300 miles apart. And uh, different levels of restriction have an impact uh, that we can measure, at least in terms of an association between between how things are enforced and, and how cities approach possession within their city limits. So there's definitely um, other variables to consider, but if you're just looking at restrictions, let me ask you, do you think the bump stock ban is going to have any effect on firearm violence numbers across the United States? That's the, let's say what the bump stock is. It, sure, goes, absolutely. it goes on a yeah, gun? You, you put it on, an, on a semi-automatic, usually a military-style weapon. They're frequently developed for things like the AR-15 um, or other um, semi-automatic um, assault weapon style, uh, uh, long guns. And what it does is it, it, it absorbs the recoil of the firearm so that the, the stock stays essentially static while the rest of the firearm pushes back. And when it bounces back on a bump stock that has, um, essentially a, something like a spring loaded mechanism that pushes the firearm back forward, right? Because the, the, the recoil goes back, but then that recoil energy is pushed, fo- pushes the firearm forward and it automatically causes the person who's holding the gun, if they're holding the trigger to pull the trigger again. So it makes and it an automatic. It, it makes it, it simulates a fully automatic firearm. Now, what I would say, and, and on, in terms of people who advocate for gun rights would point out is that, um, our focus on military-style military, military style assault weapons um, might um, – the, the argument is often that that's misguided because a military-style assault weapon and a, just a simple semi-automatic rifle that's designed without all the scary-looking plastic parts or long clips that's designed for hunting, um, you can do damage with either one. And a good shot can do plenty of damage with a bolt-action firearm or – Heck, you could kill someone with a musket, right? And right. Uh, or or a black powder firearm. And I think one of the things we need to focus on is that the bump stock ban was in relation to one incident, right? We saw the horrific Las Las Vegas shooting event that occurred a few years ago, um, and uh, and everybody reacted to this bump stock firearm. But we've got firearm violence happening. On a regular basis, we've had hundreds of school shootings since, and, and or public shootings, not just in schools, since Sandy Hook, 
And while the the horrific act of someone who um, obviously has some different ideas, I don't want to just call it a mental health problem because lots of people have mental health issues and don't go out and shoot up rooms full of people. Um, But people who obviously have different ideas about what happens next, let's say, and access to a firearm can do these horrific things and often to innocent people, people who didn't expect it children uh, and and that's a, a nationally traumatizing event but what i think we have to recognize is that gun violence has been aff- affecting poor neighborhoods for decades um since since we've gone beyond uh you know single shot black powder firearms and and since we since we've had the ability to fire off six rounds from a revolver gun violence has been a problem in poor areas we just didn't take notice so when we focus on things like the bump stock, should a bump stock be available to, to the citizenry uh, in general? My personal opinion is, is, is no, but I'm not basing that on data. I'm basing that on, on uh, my opinions on whether that's necessary or not. Now, I grew up actually, as a teenager, I was a marksman. I'm not a, I'm not a rapid anti-gun person. I, I learned how to shoot a firearm from, a, from an early age. Um, so this isn't this isn't my opinion as as a as a as someone who knows nothing about firearms or, or hates all firearms. I I my personal opinion is that the bump stock is probably unnecessary for most or all civilian applications. But is it the solution to the problem? Probably not, because we people have been shooting. Human beings have been shooting each other um, for a long time. They just weren't necessarily uh, people in suburbs. Well, good point. Thanks for discussing this with me. My guest has been Upstate Medical Social Scientist Christopher Morley. He's the chair of the Department of Public Health and Preventive Medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.